what I believe was the title of two separate essays by the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the novelist E.M. Forster in the early 20th century. These two humanist activists set out their approach to life, their fundamental worldview, in a way that was accessible to all. I'm Andrew Copson, Chief Exec of Humanists UK, and in this podcast I'm talking to humanists today about what they believe, to understand more about the values, convictions and opinions they live by. Francesca Stavrokopoulou is a broadcaster and professor of Hebrew Bible and ancient religion. She presented a three-part BBC documentary series about the Bible and archaeology, The Bible's Buried Secrets, back in March 2011. And she also appears regularly on the BBC's religion and ethics flagship programmes, The Big Questions and Sunday Morning Live. Her first non-academic book, God and Anatomy, was published in September 2021. And most importantly, she's a patron of Humanists UK. Francesca, thank you for joining us on What I Believe. Thank you for having me. I'm sure we've got loads to talk about and it's going to be really interesting, but I have to start, I think, with the most obvious question, Mm -hmm. which is, how did a humanist and an atheist end Mm -hmm. up a Bible scholar? Oh, well, um, I think just because I'm a geek, really, and I'm a Greek geek in the sense that I loved all the myths and legends about Greek gods and goddesses when I was a kid and um, couldn't understand why those gods somehow hadn't endured into my life and my you know the modern day and yet you know this kind of white god with a big white beard and a son that he sacrificed and killed and you know how 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 come that all was around and and yet all the exciting stuff had disappeared um so that's what got me interested and and led me to studying the bible um and really loving the bible and appreciating it um for this as an incredible anthology of ancient literature um, and ancient ways of being in the world. You know, not that I agree with those ways necessarily at all, but yeah, it's fascinating stuff. And is that what drives you to study it or drove you to study it? Curiosity, fascination with their different ways of being? Yeah, but also I think there's a part of me that wants to give a voice in my own small way to those people of the past those peoples of the past whom the biblical writers deliberately vilify um, and marginalize and disempower you know these polytheists and these goddess worshippers um and and i kind of you know they're given such a bad press in the bible and i i kind of want to give them a voice so a lot of my research is focused on sifting the likely religious realities of the past from their distortion ideologically um, and theologically in the biblical texts um so yeah in a way it's kind of investigating what those peoples in the past felt and thought and and did i think and why do you feel so strongly about that that they have a right do you think they have a right to be heard or you just feel it's an injustice or what is it that that makes you feel that way about those people yeah it's 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 partly in injustice because you know, for hundreds of years, the way in which the Western intellectual tradition has handled the Bible has been to give it an authority that's not just a theological authority, because obviously a lot of people in my field are religious themselves, but to give it some kind of cultural and moral authority. Um, And I feel that, you know, that's obviously led to the Bible being this kind of cultural icon in our own society today, which is deeply problematic. 
in all sorts of ways. Um, but it has disempowered um, and stripped away the the realities of this lived experience of peoples from society so long ago. And, and we don't tend to do the same thing to people from ancient Egypt or ancient Greece or ancient Rome. Um, uh, and, and yet when it comes to the people of ancient southern Levant, um, I, I, I just feel that, yeah, their voices don't get heard as much. Um, and I kind of identify with them, you know, like they, they, their religious ideas, their, their ways of being in the world, the ways they understood the power of their own bodies and the power that they had over others. Um, it just seems to me sometimes to be a much more, not just more colourful, but a more vivid sensory engagement with with the world in which they lived and I, and I think sometimes we're so logocentric we're so focused on texts and words and 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 they're the sorts of media that we give authority to but actually um I, I think we can learn a lot from these ancient people well let's talk a bit more about that then and, and, and the qualities that you um admire or the the characteristics that you admire. Can you tell us a bit more about uh, a couple of those things, maybe with some, you know, I don't think many people who, who are listening will know much mm-hmm. about uh, the lives and times of the people you're talking about, partly because, as you say, for most people, apart from specialists in in, in, in the field, they've been erased. Mm. You know? So tell us a bit about that, those those bits of their worldview or their values or they admire, or is it those things or their ways of being? Just tell us about that because you do it so well. <laughs> well... So this might make me sound a bit weird, <laughs> but one of the one of the things I do write a lot about in my sort of scholarly writing um, are ancient death ways. So how people um, dealt with the dead, identified death, um, responded to death, and so for example, secondary um, what's known as sort of secondary burial was a really common form of mortuary practice in in the ancient Levant. So by that I mean you would bury the body, lay it out in a tomb. And then once the, the corpse had decomposed into skeletons, um, it looks like, you know, a few perhaps household members or family members would go into the tomb, gather up the bones and um, disarticulate them and remove them from the place on which the corpse had been laid out. But then sort of commingle them with the bones of previous people that had been buried in the tomb. Um, and, you know, some scholars say, you know, this gives rise to a phrase that we find often in a lot of Hebrew Bible or Old Testament texts where death is described as being gathered to the ancestors. And sort of so you're materially, your bones are being gathered to, to the ancestors. But then there are other practices as well that, that we find archaeological reflections of. So things like um, kind of leaving offerings for the dead and um, consulting the dead um, for specialist otherworldly information. Now, I'm not suggesting that we should you know, go and sit around graves and eat sort of special food and, and you know, expect to have some kind of a message from the world beyond, because um, I don't think that a world beyond exists. But what I really like about it is the central way in which it places both the remains of the dead and the social presence of the dead, of the ancestors, in the lives, in the everyday lives of the living. And I think we're not very good at doing that. I mean, a similar practice happens in some traditional communities in Greece. So like where my family's from, um, secondary burial is quite common. And um, you sort of, you rearrange the bones, you know, you disinter the skeleton and rearrange the bones and often, you know, rebury them in the wall or floor of a church or something. Um, but it's that kind of visceral sensory contact with the dead um, and recognising that they continue to play a role in our lives. And I, I, I like that. And I, I think we should do more to kind of, 
connect with those that have gone before us um, because they still play a very powerful role for us. You know, we all have dreams about, you know, our dead granny or, you know, we still think it's important to go and visit grave sites or, you know. But we talk to them in our heads and sometimes we know what they'd say in reply. They're still there, you know, in that. Yeah, exactly. So we still have continuing bonds with our dead. It's just that we're not very good at materialising that and, and sort of making it a part of, our everyday kind of lives in in the way that I think ancient peoples did. Um, so that's one way. That's one thing I think we can learn from the people of the past. And is that what this commingling for you probably denoted to the people who practiced it? This awareness, comparatively greater awareness of their place in a long line of people and a. Yeah, I think it's about a main a way of maintaining and building community and recognizing that community you know in terms of identity or place um it is it's something that does travel down the generations and the generations are important i mean look at the the debates uh, that are being had at the moment about you know returning artifacts from the colonial west um to their to their place of origins i mean a, a lot of for for indigenous peoples in particular a lot of that is about the material connection with the bones and artifacts of ancestors and the ways in which that manifests a right to place, a right that's been taken away from them by colonial powers. Um, and I think that's really important. Yeah, and I and I think that idea of commingling with those who have gone before us, um, physically, materially, in a sensory way. Do you believe in that right? Do you believe in that, that, that connection or that imagined connection creates a sort of right for people to have because I know that that's controversial for a lot of people who work with the past who work with artifacts who work with human yeah. remains um you know that it's it gives rise to controversial discussions about who has the right yeah I, and, and I think I think there's a very powerful narrative to be told about the fact that this kind of commingling of artifacts and place and peoples um does create a very strong case for um for people's rights over those objects and artifacts and, and remains. Um, you know, human beings are amazing. We've got this huge capacity for social imagination and it's our sociality as animals. Are really, we're really highly social. And I think, you know, that sociality extends beyond the present and even extends beyond, you know, our, you know, what we're doing for our, for the future generations. I think it should extend the other way as well. I think that we should recognize and, and give, some weight and authority to the idea that it extends to the past too. I mean, you look at the way in which, say, human remains are treated in some um, some museums. So, for example, there are, you know, I, I can speak with a little more knowledge of the situation in Israel and Palestine when it comes to archaeological artefacts. And you look at the way in which human remains, say, in the Israel Museum, if they're identified as Canaanite, in other words, the pre-ancient Israelite people, so say Middle Bronze Age remains, no problem at all for those bones to be on show. If they're identified somehow as Iron Age and from places that um, either gave rise to the ancient Israelite kingdoms or which the cultural narrative in modern day Israel suggests that these are, um, you know, the the ancestors of the Jewish people then those remains aren't put on display because it's seen as disrespectful so that's quite a negative side of this connection that some people might feel yeah, I mean, the, it's not just a connection with with some dead people from the past it's a difference from other dead people it's a sort of death tribalism and racism yeah exactly there's a hierarchy of um 
of the dead. We know we see that quite often in, in the death rituals of our own cultures. One of the things I like, there's a local cemetery near to where I live um, in Hevertree in Exeter. And obviously it's got loads and loads and loads of war graves as most, you know, cemeteries in Britain do. Um, and there are German and French and um, Italian burials there alongside, you know, British um, remains of, of people killed. And and what I quite like about that cemetery is, in particular, that the war graves there, is that the foreign, and I'm using air quotes, the foreign um, remains are treated in exactly the same way as the, the native or indigenous remains, the British remains of those killed in the war. And I, and you know, that's one way in which it's, I think there's, there's been a move to try to, to bring a sense of, of justice and to recognise that, you know, even in something as horrific as war, there's loss on both sides. And, you know, it's trying to erase a sense of a hierarchy of dead, you know, that, you know, the British dead are not more special than the German dead, for example, when it comes to those um, World War graves. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, the dead are political and artefacts are political. Um, and, you know, they can have negative impact as well as a positive impact. But I do think we don't hear enough about, you know, there isn't as much authority given to Indigenous peoples' rights to their ancestors' artefactual and, you know, mortal remains. Um, because what we tend to favour is the idea that somehow the West has rescued these things and collected them for the benefit of everybody, you know, as long as you can get to London and into the British Museum or whatever. Hi, this is Andrew, appearing halfway through the podcast to remind you that this is a podcast from Humanist UK, the national charity working on behalf of non-religious people to advance free thinking and promote a tolerant society. If you'd like to support the podcast or find out more about the humanist approach to life, Humanist UK, or the work that we do, you can find out more at the Humanist UK website, humanists.uk. And if you like what you see, please consider giving us your support or joining as a member. Give us another one. I mean, so that's death rituals, but you, other, other um, points of connection that you uh, philosophically or aesthetically feel you have with these people from these cultures that you study. I think you've talked about groundedness in the past quite well, quite um, in, in quite an illuminating way, you know, connection with the earth and through the feet. Yeah, I mean, my goodness, like, you know, the people I study were primarily an agrarian people. You know, they, they lived um, and died on the land that they worked and they had a, a huge sense of um, connection with the environment um, in ways that we're only just starting to, you know, look at what's happening at the moment at COP26. Like we're only just starting to recognise just um, how much damage, not only that we've done to the planet, but how much damage we've done to ways of being in the world, I think. Just because you can, you know, farm on an industrial scale and just because you can deforest huge areas, just because we've got the technology to do that, doesn't mean to say that's the right thing to do. And one of the things that I, I particularly admire about some of the texts that I work on, the ancient texts that I work on, is that there's a real sense of the non-human environment, whether it's animal or agrarian, as somehow having its own social agency. It, you know, they're almost non-human persons quite often. And it gives, um, and so there's a much more, sensory relationship I think with those environments I mean people did use their bodies in ways that we we don't you know today um but 
but I, I think it also is a reflection of the ways in which people understood in the past that they were so bound up with not just the seasons, um, but you know, with with the way that things grow and the and the way to to nourish and nurture non-human life. Um, which I, I really admire. And again, I think that... So you're responding to that ethically. You're having an ethical response to that. You feel that's good value. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Um, because I think we have, you know, I'm... I, you know, we all try and do our bit, don't we? I've been a vegetarian for years and years and years, not because I, I don't like the taste of meat. My God, I love it. And I miss it. But I just feel that I'm privileged enough to live in a society in which I'm, you know, there's an array of non-meat produce that I can eat um and you know and I know that's not and that's not the case for some people in the world some people you know are far more reliant on animal products than than I am um you know they're economically more restricted in that sense um but I just think you know I I like animals an awful lot um I do think of them as as non-human persons um and and I think that um if I don't need to eat animals then I won't eat animals. Now, I know that there's a whole other argument out there that says, yes, but do you realise the damage it does to the environment just by producing meat substitutes and blah, blah, blah? Yes, I know. I, I know. Um, but I think it's that emotional. So it's not just an ethical response. It's an emotional response that I have as well. I, I value animal life to the point where it's an emotional connection for me. And so I don't want to eat them. Because you don't want to cause suffering because, and, and you believe that other animals can suffer. Right? Yeah, I absolutely. I don't want to cause suffering. And I don't think that an animal should be born to be killed by, should to be eaten by me. I realise that an animal, you know, probably should be born to be eaten by somebody who doesn't live in the same socio-economic climate as me. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't want to partake. And particularly the, the, the way that, that meat... Um, is packaged and marketed you know you you would never know it's a bit of an animal you know when we see it it's kind of ethically you know and sort of morally emotionally sanitized when we see it in this neat little plastic packaging and um and I just I just find that completely distasteful it's horrific walking past it when I was a kid there was a butcher's on the high road that used to like do the old-fashioned thing of hanging basically animal corpses (laughs) out of you know and there are some that still do that you know and I remember being so appalled by that um and so yeah i i i do think you know what do i believe i believe that we should treat animals as as non-human persons stories seem to play a big part in your life you know you've you've uh, a lot of the ethical principles that you've elaborated or the reasons for x or y you've started on a story you know it's it's interesting that you know someone might say i don't eat meat because i don't want to cause animal suffering but you said why should an animal be born and live its life and then end its life? You brought a sort of narrative structure even to this ethical <laughs> claim. St- stories are a big part of your life. Yeah, but and I think... Is that right? Yeah, I, I think that's true, actually. I'd not really thought about it like that. But I think, yeah, um, I've, never, I've never been one for kind of... I hated philosophy when I was at university. I hated it. I just kind of found it was so abstract, but but so abstracted of any kind of reality um and i don't connect i don't connect immediately well with kind of concepts and constructs that are just sort of seemingly plucked from the air <laughs> a bit like god um you know <laughs> what i like you know what I, I i i think everything we you know 
we're contextual beings, aren't we? And and everything yeah. that we kind of do and think and feel and decide is is always contextual and relational. Um, and I think that's very much how I am as a as some as a thinker. I suppose is that that narratives or images um, or experiences, feelings like uh, grab me and and kind of inspire me far more than abstract stuff. Yeah, I think I'm the same in that way. I think a lot of humanists are actually. Yeah. I think beyond the sort of like stereotype of a humanist as like some philosopher and materialist, my experience is actually they're far more likely to be found reading a novel. Yeah. Or ad- admiring George Eliot or something, or reading Zadie Smith and, you know, or, or myths and getting their moral development that way. Did, was your moral development very influenced by story? God, yeah, hugely. And, and stories in a very kind of formal sense, in the sense that, you know, we grew up um, with no money at all, and so you know, the place we went to every Saturday, me and my me and my mum was the public library, and you know, we get our library books, then we go back to the laundrette where we dropped off the washing, and we'd sit and you know, and wait, you know, transfer the wet washing into the into the tumble dryers, and and sit and read books while we waited for the spin cycle to come to an end, and um, and so in that sense, stories were always a really important formative part of me. But also stories about who we are and 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 what we do and um you know as a family, but also um you know stories that we all share I mean like look at the major events in the kind of the public calendar that they they are they're all narratives I mean yes, we're still despite claims to the contrary, we are still very much a Christian country um oh and, dear <laughs> well we are aren't we well, but I mean, the thing is, you know, I mean, and I mean that um, not so much, not necessarily culturally, but I mean the way yes. that our lives are organised, the way that you know the academic year runs, the calendar, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I think one of the secrets of Christianity was that it told a bloody good story. You mm. know, it had its own mythology. That's why so many, you know, other ancient religious myths were were so important and so malleable and so translatable across different social groups and cultures. Um, you know, and, and that was one of the secrets of, of Christianity, earliest Christianity, was that it gave it gave a good story. Um, and, yeah, so I think in that way, stories have always been very important to me. And you do learn a lot of your, you get a lot of your, you know, you get your told family stories, obviously. Exactly. That's a really important one. You take your place in the family through story and then you sort of take your place, don't you, in a wider culture through story. And then in, in your case, definitely you've cast your yourself in an even longer story of ancient societies and the long human story and so on yeah yeah I think that's true and and compete well you know and I think I think stories help you to deal with competing and conflicting ideas too because we could we all tell conflicting narratives of ourselves um let alone our own societies or our own families or whatever um and I think you know that that sense of and filling in the gaps as well um, particularly in family narratives, filling in gaps that you don't know what the real answer is or what the secret is, but you know you somehow these gaps get conjured into some kind of an, an, another thread in the tapestry of the family or whatever. That sort of seems to bring us back to where we started in terms of curiosity and uh, wanting to investigate into stories and find uncover them and find the the truth and so on. And you've said in 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 on many occasions actually not just in, in in our chat here but on many other occasions um you've to some extent i don't want to use too strong a word i was going to say not castigated but you've cast shade to some extent on the uh, on on as it were modernity 
um, in at least some respects. And yeah. I remember we discussed this about seven years ago at the World Humanist Congress. You said this, and it was controversial with some, you know. Um, I know there were proper gasps <laughs> as well in the audience. Was, there was shock. <laughs> there was shock. Um, and yet you are, you know, a scholar applying mm. the methods of post-Enlightenment scholarship to text and place and and in, a, in an Enlightenment institution, you know, in a, in, in a university. Do you find the these two things easy to integrate, this admiration for pre-Enlightenment concepts and this inhabitation of Enlightenment institutions? Um, not easy. Um, but I think in a way, you know, one informs the other, doesn't it? And, and you know, and it works and it's, it's a two-way street in the sense that, yeah, I, I do think that human exceptionalism has got worse, I think, um, in a post-industrial um, sort of modern society. Um, and I think, you know, I'm not saying that there weren't groups in the ancient world that, that, that viewed humans as exceptional. Of course, most of them did. You know, a lot of ancient myths are all about how special humans are in the, in the, the non-divine world. Um, but I like to be reminded that there are other ways of being in the world. And I think that's what studying, not just ancient cultures, but, but you know, social groups that, that are alive and kicking today, you know, indigenous communities, um, very traditional religious communities. Um, you know, there's an awful lot that I wouldn't want to adopt in my own life in those sorts, from those sorts of groups. But equally, I think it's really helpful um, and fruitful to be reminded that there are other ways of being in the world. And so although we really value everything that science can teach us and everything it tells us that we can't possibly know, um, it's fantastic and it's wonderful. I don't want to reduce us to a collection of atoms and particles and, you know, all that stuff. You see, I don't even know what you see. I, I can't even tell you what the proper... Bits and pieces, units. <laughs> I, I, I like to think that when I'm reminded of um, there's a community living in the Amazon who um, whose definition of what a person is and how they define themselves as people changes in relation to the context in which they find themselves. So, for example, um, when they are um, performing one of their particular rituals, and don't ask me for any for any kind of sources on this because I'll have to get back to you in an email because I'm literally just pulling this out of my head from something I read a couple of years ago. Um, but it was a scholarly a scholarly um, piece of work. I have I have trust in you. But you know, so when they're in a they're performing a particular kind of rite of passage, I think it's mainly men and boys that are doing it. Um, they see themselves as it involves hunting a bush pig and they see themselves as people and the bush pig is a bush pig. If, however, a, a jungle cat appears, a jaguar or whatever, then the jungle cat is the person and they become bush pigs. And, I, you know, you can kind of see how that kind of like maps onto ideas about relational power um, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, definitely. But But I like it that there isn't this kind of fixed sense of, who are we? Who am I? What is a person? What is an animal? What is a cat? What is a... Um, it's very relational and very fluid. And it reminds me that there are different ways of being in the world right now, today. Um, and just because our mode and way of being in the world is more dominant economically, socially, politically, um, doesn't mean, you know, it's not, it doesn't mean it's the only way. Um, and I like... You like that, you like that not just because it's a... Con 
human beings putting themselves in a different context you also like it because it's human beings putting themselves in a non-dominant yeah recognizing recognizing the social power of another of what we would call a non-human um life mm. which I, I i think is really um i just find it helpful just helpful to think that just because we see the world in this way because we are encultured to see the world in this way um doesn't mean that all people see it that way and why is our way necessarily better than other people's ways and yet what you've said is riven with human exceptionalism to some extent you know we're the storytellers we're yeah. the social animals no one no animals are social as us aren't yeah no i didn't say no animals are as social as us oh okay all right elephants are highly social animals and they perform oh, yes, okay. military rituals okay, as do chimpanzees so there are you know we are a highly we are highly social as a species but we're not the only highly social and imaginative i think species because we know that other species can do that too justice for marginalized people from the past death rituals identity in the long human story groundedness stories and human exceptionalism thank you francesca savrakopoulou for telling us what you believe thank you that was francesca savrakopoulou telling us about her life and her outlook on the world as a humanist for the what i believe podcast what i believe is a weekly podcast from humanist uk and this was the sixth episode of the fourth season we'll be releasing new episodes every thursday if you'd like to support the podcast, find out more about Humanism, Humanist UK, or the work that we do, you can find out more at the Humanist UK website, humanists.uk. And if you like what you see, please consider joining as a supporter or a member. You can also, to find out more about Humanism, purchase the Sunday Times best-selling The Little Book of Humanism, available now at all good bookshops. Mm -hmm.